Welcome to Content Disrupted, bold takes on brand marketing. I'm your host, Dan Baptiste, and together we'll explore what it takes to excel in brand marketing at one of the most exciting and disruptive times in industry history. Welcome back to Content Disrupted. Joining us today is Samir Amin, the Global Director of Data-Driven Marketing and Media at Reckitt. Samir has been at Reckitt for nearly 12 years, a rare fate these days. For those unfamiliar with Reckitt, their company brings you household names like Airborne, Clearasil, Biofreeze, Durex, Lysol, and many more. Samir is here today to share his lens on digital transformation and marketing and how brands need to adapt to today's climate. Sam, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, great to be here, Dan. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So, data-driven marketing and media. Tell me about your role at Reckitt and what it encompasses. My role is an extension of what I was doing previously. So my previous stint at Reckitt was around head of media in the UK, media director in the US. And it was relatively easy because the majority of our investment was around TV. I'd worked in TV for 20 years before, so it was relatively easy to understand where we basically had to leverage our volumes to get the best pricing. We could benchmark where we were versus our competitors. But then when we moved into digital and accelerated our investment in digital, we soon realized that actually the dynamics had changed. So volume wasn't a key advantage driver. We also needed more technology. We needed better data. We need better systems, better operating models. My new role is basically making sure we have the right media investment strategies. So still making sure that we have competitive pricing, but also how do we basically take advantage of digital channels and win on those channels, which is around making sure that we understand how they work, the right content, the right bidding strategies, the right technology, and the right operating model. From a career path standpoint, I think you and I actually have some parallels. So I was in broadcast media, but on on the media side for 15 years. So I worked in radio and shout out to my radio peeps. Here we, here we are back on this medium again, right? And from when I was there, I was looking in, and this was early days in 2010. And the shift that I saw happening was this move away from what we would call like interrupt advertising. So you have an ad spot, you put it in context of, of a message that people want to hear and then interrupts and hopefully they don't tune it out. What I saw was people moving away from those interrupt ad models, either opting out, paying to get rid of them, setting up ad blockers, and, and, and. And at the same time, to your point, these digital channels started exploding. So the access to people and consumers and buyers in an interesting way started to change. So now instead of interrupting a media message, you actually could bring that message forward as a brand. And if you could, you could build your own audiences, you could influence people, and, and the impact was massive. So that was what made me shift from this mass media model to digital. Back then, I mean, I think we moved at about the same time. Like, What was going through your mind as you moved from a pretty long history and successful history in broadcast TV to diving more into the digital space? I think there was two dynamics at play that really happened. Firstly, we saw that uh, TV audiences were declining, especially the younger demographics. So the strategy of putting all your eggs in one basket wasn't really working. And I think what you end up having was audience-led inflation. So the price of TV was actually increasing. And then what you had was the social channels were actually then developing their ad products. So those two dynamics came into play and they could deliver audience scale similar to TV. 
And the third one, if you even think about it, was how TV's role in the consumer journey had changed. So TV was really used to drive awareness, to give credibility, or traditional media, if you say radio as well. It was, if you could afford to go on TV, people tended to trust you more. But then with the advent of social, people could actually find out for themselves that actually this car isn't the best car because someone who's bought it is telling me he's got X amount of problems with it. This cola isn't the best cola because I bought something else, which is another brand. So suddenly social allowed people to have a voice and challenge the status quo. It allowed us to get peer-to-peer recommendations, which is more powerful than a brand telling you how great they are. So all those dynamics in place really felt that it was the right time to move away, not solely from TV, but move into digital and then play to each other's threads. So when we moved into digital, we did something which most advertisers did. We used digital to drive extended reach to TV. So it was like TV was losing reach. We replaced a few TV channels with Facebook or YouTube and hey, presto, we've reached our principles. And that wasn't the smartest thing because we were then still playing to the strengths of TV. We looked at how we could reduce our pricing. And what you find is when you buy cheap on TV, the only thing you get is higher frequencies and older TV profile and maybe not access to the to the right programs. But when you buy cheap on digital, there's a whole load of stuff that happens, right? Low viewability. So people might actually see ads. Brand safety concerns. Is my ad actually being seen by the right people? Because once again, we don't have the same audience uh, profiles that we do on TV unless you have the right data or your first party data. You might have smaller player sizes. So your your share of screen isn't going to be as prominent. So suddenly expect moving your media mix around and expecting the same results we weren't seeing that. And that was one of the key things I think a lot of advertisers around the mid, like 2015s, 2017s realized that doing this isn't really driving the most effective use of digital. What we ended up doing was playing to the strengths of each channel. So TV we knew was good for mass reach, big audiences, but it was one message to millions. Well, for, for digital, we knew that actually if we really wanted to take advantage of digital, we had to segment our audiences different. We could actually talk to a certain group of buyers or consumers or lifestyle, life stage people in a different way to others. And that was the strength of digital. It allowed us to segment and drive more relevant content. And that's how we then had to mobilize our organization because we weren't used to that. We were used to producing one TV asset that could tell you the benefits of Lysol and why it was a great disinfectant. But then how you use that within different life stages and different lifestyles was very different between, like, I'm a new dad. So Dettol here, which is the Lysol equivalent of the UK, is spraying everything, right? When I was 25, I didn't really care about that. When you start using data and segmenting, you can drive more relevant communications. And I think that's how we've used digital and actually drove ROIs of the marketing budgets. You talked about some learnings or fail points early in the relationship with social and in TV specifically. When we think of this change from one message to potentially many messages, one of the challenges or fail points that we've seen brands do over the last few years, but now are, they're kind of smartening up to is this idea of messaging and consistency. It's very easy to your point to say, okay, I have this segment on this channel. I need to talk to him in this way. 
And what you quickly find is this kind of rat's nest of all kinds of different messages in market on different channels. And I'm programming at a channel level and that channel might go away. Like all of this complexity, like as a brand, how do you create momentum and semi-consistency in a world that could be that fragmented? Yeah, look, I think it's a great question. And it's one of the things that our marketing teams hate about it, right? Because we're, we're now saying, actually, now we've got five different segments Let's get it right. It's not personalization at scale. So I don't want to talk to like in the US, there's like 350 million people. I don't want to talk to 350 people individually. We don't have the data. We don't have the bandwidth. But we know that actually there's groups of people with similar interests, with similar life stages, similar problems that our brands can solve. So we can then do macro segmentation at a high level and say, actually, these people, moms, we know that disinfectant is going to be core part of their routine. So therefore, the way I'm going to talk to them is going to be very different to people that might want to go to the gym and disinfect their gym clothes because of the smelliness and et cetera, et cetera. So that's how we basically ask them to produce three or four ads. We might have the messaging different in terms of the thing, but the core benefit of the product, which is called disinfection, stays the same. It's consistent across all of the different messages or adverts we do. We also then realize that actually each platform has a different requirements as well. So then that's another layer of tailored stuff. So when you're doing a reel, when you're doing a, a Facebook post, when you're doing a, a YouTube video, all of them have different dynamics of different aspect ratios, different pacing, so therefore, that's another consideration we have to do. So an asset might need to be altered for five, six different platforms we're using, which is a massive different mindset from create one TV asset and then applying it to all the different TV channels, cable, network, wired, syndicated, one TV asset would work. The same doesn't apply with digital. You have to be tailored for the different types of platforms you use, even the feed-based stuff between Instagram and Facebook or meta now it's called, even though it's a feed-based environment, there's still nuances on how you would basically tweak your creative to get more impact on those channels. And that's an education process we're doing with our marketing teams to see them so they can see for themselves the benefit and the results that they get in terms of both media KPIs, but also ROIs. The way we support brands is largely around organic reach. So starting to create content and messages both through core owned web properties, but also through social and email and on and on and on and on. So we look at it as a connected ecosystem. So how can we understand what is the purpose of your brand? How does it extend in by audience, by channel, so that you start to build everything together? That obviously, like when you look at the scale of that becomes a challenge. Are you looking at the world in that way, both from organic and paid? And, and how have you started to build that architecture within Reckit? We call it the brand habitat. What we do, we look at a specific audience. We look at the kind of behavior change we want to do. As our brands, before we were talking about very functional benefits of our brands, like we clean better than 99% of people, but then that claim Clorox has or another person or another brand has. As a marketing team, we reinvented the roles of our brands and linked them to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So creating a purpose for a brand. We're doing it in the sense that I know a lot of companies talked about purpose and but I think the way we've done it at Reckit is very good in terms of we link 
the sustainable solution or superior solution we have to the purpose. So it's our brands by their utility can drive that behavior change. So a perfect example would be finish. We know that the formulation is so strong and people still, and even I argue with my wife to this day, is she'll scrape all the stuff off and clean the plate before she puts it in the dishwasher. <laughs> What's the point, right? We could spend a half an hour on that, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I would put the plate in and, and she would say, no, you've got to clean it. I said, no, but trust me, this is my brand. I know it'll clean it. So, and it saves water. So in countries like Turkey and well, a lot of the African countries where, and where water scarcity is a real thing, that has really changed how people perceive the brand. And when you're talking on social channels, you everyone's talking about performance like cleaning dishes no one really cares but when you're talking about saving water on Harpit in India we've put 100 million toilets in and we're talking about actually making people's life safer through the use of toilets and san better sanitation with Vanish which is uh, like the Oxy in the US it's about sustainable clothing and uh, and rewear circular fashion so we know that outside uh, the oil and gas industry the fashion industry is the second most pollutive industry in terms of the landfill of people basically buying fast fashion and just throwing it away. So each of our brands had linked to a, a kind of sustainable goal, but also a purpose. And through that, we said, this is the behavior we want people to change. So through that, we then created a brand ecosystem called the Brand Habitat. It looks at paid, owned, and learn. And we kind of said, okay, through this ecosystem, what are the key salient points that we need to be present? and how people are journeys through it. And then making sure we have the right content through that to make sure that people have the right information at the right time to progress through that journey. So there was a time where we didn't have information around is life all safe for my kids? So that's a key exit point when people realize that actually I don't have the information, so I'm not gonna risk it if it's my child. So we realized that actually if people come into our website, we need to provide that information, otherwise, they're going to go to someone else because they're providing that information. So the brand habitat is an ecosystem that helps us provide the right level of information to consumers to help them feel confident that our brands and products can meet their solutions. And through that, it's a mixture of paid as well as organic. And then through that, it's partnerships because we know sometimes we don't have the credibility because we're a brand, we want to do good, but we also want to make a profit. So through that, we then worked with Nat Geo to basically give us some credibility on Airwick. We worked with WWF, well, Wildlife Fund, and we actually changed the formulation of our product because they wouldn't want to work with us if we were still having chemicals as one of the base of our product. So through that partnership, we changed the way we formulated our products. So they could then be, we, now we want to work with you because you, you're serious about us. But I think those are the things that people find interesting on social channels when you talk about the greater good you're doing versus performance benefit that you are, you've been talking about. And how do you manage that? So you're talking about sustainability and responsible manufacturing and, and those elements, but you have a house of brands where on, on one side you have Durex and on the other side you have Lysol. Where is there consistency as like one record? I, I assume that sustainability message holds true, but where the brands then become like themselves, but within boundaries. How do you develop the habitat like that? It all goes back to what the behavioral change you want people to do. On Lysol, it's protecting our family, right? So it's uh, breaking the chain of infection. So that 
habitat would be very different from a, for a Durex, which is maybe like talking, depending on which market it is, it might be a safer sex or it might be more fun sex. And therefore, the habitat and the assets that you would require would be significantly different. What we do have as a brand that drives consistency is the consistency is execution. So we have brand safety for all of our brands. There's certain things that regardless of who you are, we don't do. But then we talk about how we basically can flex between brands. So perfect example would be Durex. When we were having a one record brand safety filter, it wasn't allowed to go on content around sex or condoms. So then we thought that was crazy because with that's a whole So we said, look, the the brand safety floor it could be about racism, it could be about misinformation, it could be about child pornography, et cetera, et cetera. But then actually for Jurex, we should carve out its own brand safety and it can talk around sex and go around sexual content around articles around condos, but that would not be suitable for a Neurofed or a Lysol or an Airwick or a Finnish or an Airborne or a Mucinex. But then they would also then create their own profiles of what's acceptable and what's not, linked to their brand purpose, the brand habitat, and therefore how that's how we give them enough room to play in their own spaces, but having a overarching strategy around brand safety and what Reckit as a company will find acceptable and not unsuitable. Sorry. And what role does data play as you're looking at brand purpose and how you think about presenting? the value offering both at the company level and the brand and sub-brand level? Like, how do you think about data and do you think about data when you're establishing some of these guidelines? Depends what type of data. So it's funny because everyone uses the word data, but there's different types of data which can help you and which can't help you. So when we look at the audience, we look at certain types of data that helps us build the profiles of those audiences. And then we say, okay, this audience is actually a Jurex audience, and this is the the kind of life stage, lifestyle, even psychographics. They are more likely to into. We then build content around that, and when we we have a good trading team that can help minimize the wastage you get on digital to actually drive the right content to those people. And then we have uh, KPIs that we measure against, and then we optimize. So when we know that this audience is actually resonating with this piece of content, we can try and find more of those people through lookalikes and through the internal tools that we've created. And we know that actually this message isn't resonating to this audience. We have to try something else out. So what other insight do we have on it? And then how do we basically work that insight into the creative and then resend and then retest? So that's how we we look at data in terms of how we optimize our creatives, how we optimize our media buys, but then we also look at data in terms of actually, is this selling? So are the media KPIs improving? Yes, they are. But do they translate into sales? Do they tra- translate into ROIs? And that's another set of data that we have that we work with our measurement team to then say, yeah, actually, if you get these right, it leads to a causation effect on on sales. So as you're looking at brand purpose, and I'm sure you were deeply involved in establishing that for Reckitt. There's some brands that do this particularly well, especially as we think of some of the larger narratives, like how do I make the world a better place? Like I think a lot about Patagonia as an example, right? Like, you know, they're focused, at least in the States, on protecting open spaces, right? So they're sponsoring bills that protect public lands. And it's 
all the way down to how they behave. It's responsible manufacturing, a lot of things that, that you talked about, but it's driving advocacy and having the shared mission between their audience or their consumers and their brand, right? Like they look at their brand as a platform. As you were looking at how to establish this for Reckitt and across your brand portfolio, did you see any brands that inspired you or that were doing things particularly well? And they could be your own or they could be external, but just curious that as you looked at the landscape, if anything jumped out at you. I think the recent campaign vanished in the UK around autism. So originally you'd be like, what's that link? And then when you see the creative, and it was actually one of, I think, a canned gold. And trust me, I've got a, a three-year-old that is exactly the same. He doesn't go anywhere with his blanket. And that's his comfort. The ad was about a girl that basically had a, a hoodie that was a go-to comfort. And Vanish protects clothes. So even though it was older, it still felt like new. And that was a real insight, once again, we mostly had, but no one knew what to do with it. And I think the marketing director in the UK, she actually connected that insight with the product benefit and put it together and created a wonderful creative that won a can. But it was rooted in what the brand can do. So I think what brands in the past have done is talk about purpose. Patagonia is perfect because it products as well as its purpose are linked. When we see brands that say, I want to make the world a better place, what they do as a brand doesn't really link to that. So that's why at Reckit, we, we think, okay, what can our brands do to make the world a better place? And then that's what we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about something else. We're not going to talk about stuff that our brands can't do anything about because then it just becomes like, I don't know, purpose washing or we're talking about stuff that people want to listen to, but you're not actually doing anything. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. I'd be curious your thoughts on this. So I, th I think in general, you have that, larger purpose, do I make the world a better place? And then you have a more linear purpose. So we, you know, we work with brands across the spectrum, both B2B and B2C. So on one side, you might have like a brand like Health Science Diet that creates science-backed pet food. And they look at their purpose is how do I take a science-backed approach to the care for your pet, right? So they're hiring veterinarians and experts to look at the science at every stage of the journey from when you're selecting a breed all the way through, God forbid, the passing of your pet. And how can I be there to answer every single question you have with real facts from experts at scale? And because of that, they've developed this massive audience that comes to them anytime they have a question that they can help on. Or on, on the other side, IBM security, they constantly uncover things like malware and threats in areas where security professionals need to get better. And they look at it and say, hey, our job isn't to sell more software or services. Our job is to improve the community. So they started hiring journalists to tell the stories of these malware and threats and start to make people smarter and better and see around corners. And because of that, they got this massive halo but very linear to their business. It's not necessarily about helping drive water purity in underdeveloped countries, but it's, it is true to their purpose. Like, Where do you see the line there from a larger, more altruistic brand purpose versus something that's closer to the areas that the brand can impact and the, the kind of linear benefit that you have? I think it goes back to how credible you are as a brand in, in doing it. I think there's a lot of talk these days of greenwashing and talking about sustainable washing and, and brands talking a good talk without walking a good walk. 
And I think it goes back to the credibility of what are you doing as a brand to make whatever purpose or whatever behavioral change you want a reality. And it goes back to that. So we as a company, we have a kind of saying is like hygiene is uh, the foundation of good health, right? And we have hygiene brands like Lysol and Dettol and Finish. And we have healthcare brands like Wheatonex, Lemsip, Nurofen, Durex, KY. We know that actually by getting this right, it can reduce the amount of healthcare brands, how much of our healthcare brands get used. Because we know that actually washing our hands in India, we do a massive program uh, with the Indian government on debt of washing hands. Because we know that actually there's a lot of diarrhea that happens when people don't wash their hands properly. We know that actually there's products that we most probably have that if we, in theory, don't want them to be used, right? If you break the chain of infection, like for Lysol, if you clean and disinfect, that probably has a negative impact on mucinex in terms of people getting viruses and getting colds. As a company, we've created a, a kind of purpose to say that if you do this, you might not need to do that. But if you do have it, we have the portfolio to support. It's a kind of future-proof model, I would say, in the service of the consumer. Yeah. From a data standpoint, one, and some of this is anecdotal, but you start to see fatigue, right? Like as a lot of brands started to come out. And I think a lot of it is what you're talking about, which is like the greenwashing or the purpose washing when it's not true, right? And now everybody has to be impacting the world in a positive place. And then people kind of retreat saying like, enough, I just want to buy some Lysol, right? Are you seeing fatigue in the conversation from a data standpoint? Are you still seeing the same level of impact? It goes back to the action. So what we have is a kind of formula that says, look, the brand has to fulfill its purpose. It has to be a superior product. If it doesn't fulfill its need, it doesn't matter what purpose you're going to do, it's not going to do. That leads to the purpose, which is what behavior change you want to do. And then what we then say to the markets, the local markets, is what's your fight? So how do you translate that into activation, a program? So then we leave that fight to the markets to do themselves. So the, the Finnish program in Australia is very different to Turkey, where Australia worked with farmers in making sure that they have enough water. In Turkey, it was uh, all about water preservation around the lakes. The fight will be a local activation relevant to the consumers of that market and the country. So that's how we, we try and keep it refreshed so it doesn't get tired because these problems aren't going away because people lose interest. <laughs> That is true, unfortunately. How do the markets pick their fight? Like, is it a gut reaction? Do they look and say, this is relevant to what we do? Is it the size of the spotlight on the problem? Like, how are those fights picked? A lot of those fights are in conjunction with partners. They most probably look at, okay, what partners have similar issues as us or similar interests? And then can we come together to come up with a solution? And I think that's where... One of the key things I think Reckit has changed in its way is how it handles partnerships. Before we always we always used to think we could do everything on our own. And then when you get to a certain scale, you think actually, or a certain scale of problem, you realize you can't do it on your own. And you have to work with likes of water.org, the governments, NGOs, WWF, the likes of Nat Geo, to really not only provide the credibility of the programs, but also their expertise. And they know that actually this is how you actually create the solution in a particular market. So we might partner with them in a market like India because they know actually this is how you're going to solve the problem. 
and we might provide them with resources, funding, uh, product, et cetera, et cetera. And are you seeing that translate into like brand loyalty metrics or business growth metrics? Like when you find alignment on something powerful uh, where you can have an impact, are you seeing that it is an impact, a positive impact on the bottom line? Yeah, and it was it was funny. I think when we started this, these levels of programs maybe about six, seven years ago, the question was like, are we accepting a loss of short-term revenue for long-term growth? And I think our CMO and CEO at that time said, look, it's a nonsense question because by doing good, we as a company, we can do well. We're reframing the products haven't changed. We're reframing how the products are used, reframing how the products can do a greater good. And it shouldn't lead to any loss of revenue for us in the short term. It's just actually expanding the use cases to a wider set of audiences in a more relevant way. As we think about the layers of this, right, I think what you're describing is establishing kind of your place in the world, like as a brand or a collection of brands, know who you are, know who you impact and know how you impact them in a positive way and kind of lean in and then think through how you nuance those messages to make people a part of that mission and advance it so you have that shared goal. When we think of transformation, a lot of it depends on kind of how we came up as individuals. Like, so if I, if I were in your seat, how I would approach a challenge versus you. When I look at your transformation lens, at least from what I can observe, a lot of it is around this integration of IT and marketing. Tell me more about that. It, one, is that true? And then two, like, what's the power in linking those two functions together to drive a different outcome? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think we started our transformation with a sole focus of improving our marketing ROIs. We benchmarked our capabilities externally, and we were most probably one of the, the top five advertisers in TV globally. So we had a sense of pride in that, and we knew we had most probably the best pricing, if not in the top five globally. And then when we did our digital benchmarking, we were absolutely below average. And suddenly for a company that prides itself on that performance, it was a very humbling experience knowing that you didn't really have the capabilities, the talent, the resources, the infrastructure to outperform in the digital space. So that was the catalyst. And once again, it was something that uh, I was doing a lot of reading on because it's not naturally, I was a media guy and I got asked to run this company-wide transformation. So I had to do a lot of learning and hiring a lot of smart people to help with this. One of the stats that would always come up in every transformation article was 70% of transformations failed. And I said, for once, I want to be in the minority. And you realize that a lot of the time, why they fail isn't the technology, isn't legacy technology, isn't technology adoption. It's actually people. And it's the people that resistance the change. There's a really good quote by this guy I follow on Twitter, Alex Harmozy. He said that, I'm paraphrasing, people are scared of change more they are than losing, so they lose. And I use that every time we do a deployment and we go to market and we change, so we that's the first quote I put up. None of us want to lose. We're very competitive at Wreck-It. We take a lot of pride. And change is something that people tend to fight. And the processes that we put in place is very disruptive to the way the marketing teams and the media teams and the agencies were, were used to working. And a lot of the, um, the things that we did, the success factors were breaking down some of the silos that we created. As a multi-billion organization, there's loads of people. 
And even today, 12 years in, I meet someone that I was like, oh, I didn't even know that job existed. Like, oh, I can leverage you in this project. So that was one of the key things was trying to get everyone aligned and making sure that my priority was their priority. And, and that wasn't the case. The IT guys, the digital uh, specialists, they didn't talk to each other. So people were making products that no one was going to use in marketing, which was a, a waste of time, money, effort, and resources. So one of the key things we did was create forums where we got all the key stakeholders and we kind of said, okay, what are you working on and how you can support me? And this is what I'm working on. So through that, we had to establish a race seat. So my team is responsible for the strategy. So we're saying, this is what capability we need. This is the functionality we need on the tools. This is how it's going to impact the marketing uh, teams. Then I hand it off to IT and said, now you source the technology that can help with that. So I don't get involved in, is it Adobe? Is it Salesforce? Is it Google? I don't care. I care about the capabilities that that tool is going to do. So we all define clear races and roles. And I think everyone felt a lot more connected as a team because what I was doing, it was also then highlighting the great work the IT and D team were doing. So a lot of the times I'd go into meetings, my team would say, you didn't say anything about us. I was like, yeah, but my job isn't to promote you guys at the moment. Everyone knows you did the job. It's these guys. I have to get them into the right forums and making sure that their work gets recognized because I need them to really help drive this transformation. We can't do it alone. And I think that was the key aha moment when everyone realized they can't do it on their own. And we were all vested in driving this transformation. And, and the most important thing was sharing in the success. So it wasn't just one team or my team that did it. It was actually the IT team, the insights team, the, the measurement team, the trading team, all of them, which all worked for different teams and different bosses, all had to come together. And was it easy? No, because once again, we all have different bosses, all different priorities, but we all had a common goal to say, we all want to improve how we do marketing at Ricketts. And we all want to make sure that every dollar, rupee, yen, euro, pound we spend in digital, we're always going to maximize our ROI on that. So this is an absolute pandemic in enterprise organizations, as I'm sure isn't a surprise to you, right? Like you have all of these competing silos, each with their own functional areas, their own responsibilities, their own metrics of how they're judged. And often they're at odds, right? Which is why you just hunker down and be like, oh, well, with that, if I help Sam, I can't help myself, right? Like, because his goal isn't my goal. Like whose responsibility is it to change that dynamic? And like how high or low in the organization do you have to be to start bringing that change forward? It's a great question. And I think it goes back to like, no one's told us to do this in terms of no one says you have to work with this guy, but I know I can't do my job without that person. And that person knows that they can't do their job effectively without my team. So hence why we appeal to the, the kind of human nature element of empathy in terms of how we connect the teams together. We now basically make sure that we all work on a fewer number of projects together on PDR. So we might say out of my four objectives of the year, three of them should be yours. So my priority should be your priority. So I want you to have your PDRs reflect my PDR, so personal development objectives. And you made that decision or is that... I work with other leaders in the team because otherwise, once again, as a center of excellence and a global function, I ask the question to everyone. I go, do you want to look stupid in front of the market? Because if you do, then good luck to you. 
Um, <laughs> Keep if going. You don't, yeah. If you don't, then we have to work together because at the moment, the markets who actually implement a lot of the strategies, they're overrun with a lot of work. They're overrun with like this guy saying you have to do this, this guy saying you have to do that. So we have to simplify and make it easy for them. So we've got to be connected. I can't go to the market and say, do this. And then a week later, you go and say, do the opposite. Because then they'll look at us and say, hold on a minute. You guys are doing, you're giving me conflicting information. So guess what? I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's how I was when I was in the US. I was like doing what I wanted to do. So I kind of said to all the global functions, it's like, we have to come together as one. We have to be united force. Because when we give a message to the market, it has to be one message. It has to be simple. And we got to be able to all work together in how we deliver and support that market. Because I know if I ask the market to do something, I'm going to get 50% compliance. But I know the EVP of the region, if he asks that question, he's going to get a higher level of, uh, than me. So we also arm the right people to ask the right questions because we know that's how you drive change. If they keep on talking about what's my TV pricing, how many TV GRPs you're buying, then the focus of the market is going to be, I'm going to focus on my TV strategy. But if the EVP starts asking about what's your audience strategy, what's your data strategy, what's your technology strategy, suddenly by him asking that, he's going to drive that change in his organization and his region a lot quicker than I will. So you have to partner with those uh, senior stakeholders to drive that. And you've got to deliver in return because all he wants is I want better revenue, I want better ROI, I want better net promoter scores. I want better equity scores. I want people to connect to our brand. So by giving him all this, he will support you. If you don't, he won't. Yeah. There's an old saying, uh, the numbers on the wall go up, right? Like, so if I'm asking you these specific metrics, chances are those specific metrics will get implemented. Part of that is skill and knowledge and growth. Some of the things you're asking the markets to do, they've never done before. How do you bring them along? Like, how do you arm them with the right level of uh, skill and talent and maybe resources to actually do the job? It's a really good question. So one of the key things we managed to do was internalize our technology. What we had, uh, we had different agencies working with different markets. It wasn't consistent of how we used our technology. So we internalized a lot of that. So that was one thing. And we had resources, internal resources that could help implement and work with their agencies to activate. We also then did loads of roadshows. So we flew all over the world, going into the markets, explaining the why, how strategic and competitive advantages have changed. So therefore, we have to be relevant. We not we showed them that how TV had a, a limit on how effective it can be today versus 15 years ago, 20 years ago. We showed them that how segmenting audiences is really the key of how we drive penetration of our, our business. How we build a habitat, which is drives better consumer experience, better loyalty. Those are the programs we initiate, and then we formalize that. So I work with a marketing capabilities team, and they've created a, a fantastic world-class uh, stimulation of DDMM, which is data-driven marketing and media simulation. So they actually, we spend three days with the markets. They actually go through the theory, and then they actually do, because we know you learn by doing. So I've done courses, and I think that the stat they said is any course you do, any type of learning, at best you retain 5% of the knowledge. By doing a course and then going back to your everyday life, you're not going to remember what you've done. So we actually spend three days, we do the, we show them all the tools that they have access to because that's the game changer. We internalized a lot of our tools. And we basically said by using these tools, 
that's how you're going to get better insights on your consumers, better understanding of how well your media app is performing, how well your creatives are performing. And you can then scale them, how well your marketing ROIs are going up. And having that information and that data is critical of how we scale and drive better performance of our marketing budgets. Got it. Imagine you're not at Reckitt and you get dropped into an organization that doesn't have the same level of resources and hasn't done a good job integrating marketing and IT. Where do you start? Like, what do you need to focus on? So folks that are in a seat being like, man, I'm miles away from this. Like, what should I be focusing on as foundational principles? How do I get moving? And then from a transformation standpoint, how do I think about driving some of the alignment that you described with different teams working together on shared goals? I think it goes back to understanding what you want from the transformation. So I remember I was in front of the senior leadership team and I had to pitch for some money for my transformation. And I could have said, hey guys, do you want to be part of uh, Sam's data-driven marketing transformation? Out of the 20 people at room, I most probably get one person raise their hand and say, yes, Sam, I want to be part of your transformation journey. So I didn't say that. I asked them a simple question. I said, how many of you want to improve your marketing ROIs? Every hand run up. And I said, okay, now that's what you want. I can give it to you. But how I give it to you is through this transformation. So it goes back to what you want. So understand, because people want to do transformations because they want to ingest the new technology, because they want to see to their shareholders that they're, they're futurizing, but don't use any of the technology. So it's being super focused on what you want from the transformation. Do you want better creative? Do you want better efficiencies? Do you want better effectiveness? Those are the types of things. Once you're single-minded, then you can start making sure that you put the right processes and right people in place to work together and then create a line vision. So one of the key things we did was we showed them the end goal. And we said, the end goal is what you want. Now, the example I use is if I said to my wife three months ago when she was heavily pregnant, you want to go on a eight-hour flight to Dubai. We have a four-hour stopover. Then we have another eight-hour flight. Then a two-hour stopover. Then you get to the airport, another hour journey. She'd be like, no. I don't want that at all. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. I don't want. If I if I framed it and I showed her the end vision, do you want to spend three weeks in Bali on the beach, uh, having your foot massage, head massage, all the the fish and alcoholic or non alcoholic cocktails you want? She goes, I want that. That's the vision, right? When you start off with that, you understand if people want it, and they see what role. So when you're doing something, they realize that that is leading to a greater good. I think a lot of the time, people start with the process. When you start with the process, it's tough, especially when you're changing behavior, when you're changing system, when you're changing up model. And if people don't see the end result, they're going to lead to resistance. So I think start off with what the vision is and then make sure that you align that vision so everyone wants it. If she said, actually, I don't want to spend time in Bali. I want to go to Barcelona for a long weekend. That would have been a different travel plan versus going all that way to Bali. So that's what I would do is align that vision, then create the right forums. So the key stakeholders, the key decision makers have to talk. They have to understand and find alignment. And it's hard, as you said, because everyone has competing goals. So once again, you've got to create dependencies that I can't do my job without this person. And how you create those dependencies 
is up to whoever is in charge, but you also got to lead with empathy. You can't say I'm the smartest, you can't. So it's how do I make someone else's work better? And that's how, that's the key sense of influencing. Influencing is like, if you've got $10 in your hand, you're not going to give that up if I give you $5, right? You said, no, I lost. But if I say, actually, I'm going to give you 15, you say, okay, I'll give up the $10. And it's the same thing in terms of how you influence ideas. How can you make people's ideas better? And then that's how you get them aboard. Then through that, you have constant races that say, look, this is how we're going to work together. So you create an op model and you make sure it's super simple for people to understand. You don't make it complicated because complexity is going to be your enemy. Because when people don't understand what role they have or what it's going to lead to, they kind of lose interest. Yeah. So I think that gets back to an earlier point you made, which is the largest barrier to transformation is ourselves, right? Like you create complexity, you start with process, you don't operate with an end in mind. And then you have these like successive reveals. And at some point people are like, enough. I don't know where we're headed or why we're doing this. You just keep asking me for stuff. So I'm done, right? So I think that's a great point as well as the concept that by helping you, my job gets better and easier. So I can see my $10 becomes $15. My $10 doesn't become $5, right? Like, so finding a way to communicate those two things to get buy-in, to get people excited, and then keeping reminding them like, hey, you're up to 13. You know, you're almost at 15. Like, let's go, right? We did a measure. Absolutely. And celebrate success. The best thing is, once again, it's, it's celebrating others. So it's easy to say, my team did this. And my team would like it, but they very much really hate it when I when I celebrate the success of others. But I need them. And once again, it's now we feel like three, four years in, we're one team. Even though we work with different, we have different bosses, we're all one team. And when we go on deployments together, we go for dinners, and we become like friends, which is a lot easier and a much more effective way of working than people before five, six years ago, where we were kind of rivals, shall we yeah. say. That makes sense. I, I guess last major question I have is you've lived through a ton of change over the last 12 years. What do you see next in this this crazy landscape that we're living in and, and how do we prepare for that now? I think the first thing in terms of change is making sure you've got the right mindset. Right? A good change is, is linked to ambiguity. And a lot of the time people are kind of scared with ambiguity because they don't know what's going to happen. And I think great leaders or good leaders see ambiguity as their friend. And that's one of the key things I've tried to do is like, if you don't know, and I don't know, I'm going to put a stake in the ground. I'm going to lead through ambiguity rather than be led in ambiguity. And I think that's one of the key things right now is there's stuff like Gen AI, which is the new buzzword. And I think it's very different to maybe this time last year where everyone was talking about the metaverse and NFTs and uh, blockchain. And I think those Web 3.0 products and uh, systems were kind of light years ahead. People, like You could see how they were going to impact. You couldn't relate to them in your everyday business. I think the difference in Gen AI, you can see the benefit right now. Yeah. Well, you got your hands so, on. Yeah. You, yeah. It, and I think it's going to be a massive disruptor in how we do business. And I think it can add a lot of value straight away from creative from uh, taking low-value tasks out of people's day-to-day -day lives so they can really focus on the, the big bets, the things that are really going to drive 
their fame at work versus the low-hanging fruit, which they have to do as part of their jobs. So I think that's a, a massive opportunity for brands. And once again, it's the how do we capitalize on it? How do we take something and embed it into our organization and then get it to work and sweat as hard for us from a marketing perspective, from a supply perspective, from a regulatory perspective? And I think that's the biggest opportunity for business, not just in marketing. It's how we embed Gen AI within the dot frame model of their business. I suspect it comes to your earlier point, which is talk to me about the beach, not Gen AI, right? Like, yeah. you know, well, as, yeah. I, as I think of, you know, where we're headed, these are all things that accelerate or things that could potentially get in our way if we can't understand them. Last the speed round, first thing that pops in your head, I'm just going to ask you five questions and then let you on your way. So as a marketer, what keeps you up at night? Talent retention. I think marketers realize that, especially within the digital space, you need good talent and you need specialists. And how we promote and retain those talent is one of the key concerns I have because everyone wants promotions, everyone wants jobs to feel that there's a progression involved. And I think in, in our companies, it's we're getting there, but it's one of the key things that keeps me up at night. How do I keep the great people that we have at work at? And what keeps you going? Learning. I have a hunger to learn. I didn't have this. Being honest, six, seven years ago, I thought I knew it all until I got into a position where I didn't know anything. And I say this, uh, I went from, sounds really arrogant, from being in most rooms, I was the smartest in the room because I knew exactly what I was doing in terms of TV activation and trading. So then being the dumbest in most of the rooms I go into now. And I think that that hunger to learn more and become as smart as the person sitting next to me is what drives me. And there's so much to learn. It's, uh, it's fascinating. And both technically and around leadership and about being more effective. So types of content I, I view is, is vast. I'm, I'm paying the dividends of it. Best business book or resource to that point? Never split the difference. Uh, that book by uh, Chris Foss. It, it's changed the way I, uh, I see life. It's a great book. Remind me to never negotiate with you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, Sam, such a pleasure. Congrats on the new addition of your family and really appreciate all the awesome insights you you brought today. So incredible time with you and uh, we appreciate you. That's it. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Content Disrupted brought to you by Skyward. To stay up to date on the latest ideas and insights in brand building and content marketing, visit our website at skyward.com. That's S-K-Y-W-O-R-D.com. Join us for our next episode, where we'll continue to challenge marketing norms and inspire you with fresh strategies for growing business through brand storytelling.